Health Affairs this week. I'm Rob Lott. And I'm Chris Fleming. And today we'll be talking about two issues that have to do with the Food and Drug Administration. Uh, First, we'll be talking about the baby formula shortage that's been plaguing the nation for the last couple weeks and the reauthorization of the FDA's user fee program uh, that has to be done this fiscal year. Yeah. So, Chris, I thought I'd uh, start um, with a few thoughts about the baby formula shortage. This is, uh, as you mentioned, been in the headlines for a while. And uh, for now, at least, it doesn't seem to be getting any better. Yeah. I mean, I've, along with everybody else, I've certainly heard about this shortage. Can you say a little bit about what went wrong exactly? How did we get to this point? Yeah. uh, Who shall we blame? Uh, Let me count the ways, Chris. Um, This is obviously a really serious problem. Um, And in addition to the dire and direct impact on individual children and families who might be struggling to Uh, get uh, the essential nutrition that they need. It's also a pretty stark illustration of just how fragmented and fragile our system is. You can see that in just how many different parties bear some responsibility for things really turning bad here. Well, I assume we might start with the actual formula manufacturers. Yeah, Chris, that's a good place to start. Uh, Notably, things really took a turn when Abbott, uh, one of the biggest uh, manufacturers, put out a recall for a large amount of the baby formula out there uh, out of fear of contamination. In fact, a number of uh, babies had gotten sick and some even died from infections associated with a pathogen that was also found in one of Abbott's main plants in Michigan. Now, it's worth noting that states, uh, CDC, FDA, were all seemingly pretty slow to track the offending bacteria in the first place. There really isn't a unified or rigorous system to confront something like this. And FDA was also pretty slow to close the plant, even after a whistleblower report surfaced highlighting some pretty serious safety issues at the Michigan plant. Well, okay. So there was this recall that immediately pulled a huge portion of inventory off the shelves. Well, let me ask the obvious question. Aren't there other plants and other producers? Yes, Chris, uh, but not quite as many as you'd think. Abbott actually controls about 48% of the market and much of their product comes out of this one plant. So suddenly removing such a big chunk of supply from the market while keeping the demand relatively constant. Uh, It applied pressure on all the other brands and suppliers, even those that weren't subject to recall. And in mid-May, nearly 75% of the formula products were out of stock across the country. Uh, Now add to that the general supply chain issues across the world economy that we've seen for months exacerbated by shocks from things like COVID and the war in Ukraine. And it's taking a lot longer for the market to correct. Well, it seems like the market for formula, I guess, was a lot less resilient than we might have thought or hoped. Yeah. So this is a classic example of a highly concentrated market. Um, In addition to Abbott, three other manufacturers together represent nearly 90% of all the formula produced and sold in the U.S. market. Now, part of that is due to forces of consolidation, late stage capitalism, right? But there's also some pretty serious barriers to entry that are unique to this market. For example, one of the leading purchasers of formula is the Nutrition Assistance Program called WIC, Women, Infants, and Children. 
And under the program, states each enter into agreements with a single major manufacturer uh, to provide uh, formula. In theory, these agreements reduce states' costs. That's a good thing. But it also allows manufacturers to consolidate their market position, which obviously is uh, not a good thing, at least in cases like this. And there's also barriers imposed by FDA, including around seemingly mundane things like uh, labeling. Well, just to pick up on that, that's one of the reasons it's been a lot harder to import supplies from abroad than you might think, right? Yeah, that's right, Chris. Um, Although the uh, Biden administration has tried to take some emergency action to relax some of those rules around imports, they're also giving states more flexibility in their WIC program. They even sponsored some so-called Defense Department airlifts of emergency formula from abroad. And they've invoked the Defense Production Act, which requires suppliers of formula manufacturers to fulfill orders from those companies before other customers. The goal, obviously, is to eliminate um, production bottlenecks. And finally, I want to mention, Chris, that the plant in Michigan uh, is expected to reopen the Abbott plant uh, this week, and hopefully they've cleaned up their operation. Looking forward, uh, we can all hope that uh, some of these steps will get the supply flowing again and uh, maybe address some of the very real public frustration with the situation. But experts still expect it will be months before we return to normal. Uh, Meanwhile, unfortunately, a lot of the underlying problems persist and FDA remains under the spotlight. Um, So speaking of FDA, Chris, I know you've been looking at a separate issue that falls under their purview. Well, that's right, Rob. This year, uh, the user fee programs for the FDA uh, are up for reauthorization. These are the programs, as many of our listeners will know, that set the FDA's fee structure for its review of drugs and medical devices, generic drugs, and biosimilars. Uh, The user fees were last uh, reauthorized in 2017, and so now they're set to expire unless Congress reauthorizes them again before October 1st of this year, uh, which is the start of the new fiscal year. So where do we stand in the reauthorization process? Well, this past Friday, May 27th, the Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions, a mouthful that's commonly referred to as HELP, uh, released its latest version of the reauthorization bill. That comes one week after the Energy and Commerce Committee in the House unanimously approved its version. Now, both chambers' bills include a range of provisions beyond just reauthorizing the user fees. And to that point, Uh, We've got a a great piece on Health Affairs Forefront by Rachel Sachs uh, that looks at these two bills. We'll talk about some of the provisions here, uh, but we'll also put a link to Rachel's article in the show notes, and I would really encourage listeners uh, to go read the full piece. Uh, In addition to that, Rachel has covered for us on Forefront uh, many of the most important proposals and developments regarding prescription drugs and drug pricing. So listeners who are interested in these topics uh, should check out Rachel's other articles on Forefront as well. Yeah, for sure. Her pieces are really, uh, really well put together. I always uh, enjoy reading her stuff. Uh, So these two bills, are there similarities between them? Yep. Uh, Of course, both of these bills uh, reauthorize the user fees themselves uh, at levels that have been negotiated between the FDA and the industries. Uh, And both bills make changes to the FDA's accelerated approval process. That uh, is the process that enables the FDA to approve drugs for serious conditions 
based on uh, what are called surrogate endpoints. Now, these are considered likely to predict clinical benefits, uh, but are not uh, the clinical benefits themselves. Now, the changes that have been proposed uh, here are not as strong as uh, those that were proposed earlier by Frank Pallone, who's the chair of the Energy and Commerce Committee, and it's a little bit unclear how they'll play out if they become law. Uh, just to give our listeners some context, uh, the accelerated approval process has come under a lot of fire in recent years. Uh, companies are supposed to do, if they get this approval, uh, this accelerated approval, they're supposed to do follow-up studies to determine if the drug really does produce the hoped for and expected clinical benefit. Uh, and if it doesn't, the FDA can theoretically revoke its approval. But uh, those follow-on studies, they often don't start on time. And when they don't uh, generate positive results, the drug often stays on the market regardless. In her Forefront article, Rachel offers some examples of this. Uh, when the FDA approved, for instance, Exondis uh, 51 for Duchenne muscular dystrophy in September back in 2016, uh, requested that the follow-on trial be completed by November 2020. But the trial didn't begin on schedule, and the results are now not expected until 2026. Uh, Makina, first approved back in 2011 for the treatment of recurrent preterm birth, uh, didn't demonstrate the expected benefit in its follow-on trial. Uh, but despite uh, an October 2020 uh, FDA recommendation to remove Makina from the market, the drug is still available, and the FDA is yet to even hold a hearing on the subject. Okay, so Chris, um, I feel a little bit like I'm looking at one of my daughter's um, school uh, worksheets where there are two pictures and there are some slight differences uh, between each. That They mostly look the same. Um, and so I guess that's sort of what we're doing here with the two bills. What We talked about the similarities between them. What are uh, some of the differences between the House and Senate bills? Well, you're making me feel nostalgic because my daughter's now in college and I kind of <laughs> miss those uh, looking back at the homework papers. Um, there are actually some uh, important differences. The Senate bill at about 400 pages is more ambitious. Uh, it includes a range of reforms to the regulation of cosmetic products, dietary supplements, diagnostic tests. Uh, well, both bills uh, also have provisions designed to, to promote competition in the drug market. Uh, they take some different tax. Uh, for example, the House bill uh, has some provisions that simplify approval of generics in certain circumstances, while the Senate bill tackles market exclusivity and transparency uh, in the context of biosimilars. Now, one thing to note, it's interesting, uh, the differences between the two bills are generally in the areas they choose to address. They don't contain uh, generally contradictory provisions in the same areas. That should uh, make combining the two versions easier, but we'll see. Well, we'll see. That's probably a good place to wrap up our conversation, Chris. Thanks for that review. Lots to follow going on at the FDA, and uh, we'll encourage our readers to stay tuned and to tune in to Health Affairs this week, uh, next week. Uh, and leave a review, uh, which helps uh, other listeners find the show. Thanks, Rob. <laughs>